cheers to another episode of the Wine Notes Podcast. I'm your guide, AJ Weinzettel, on this journey of stories showcasing the people behind the wonderful world of wine, where we dive into conversations ranging from terroir, viticulture, to favorite music, superpowers, and more. Please enjoy this episode of the Wine Notes Podcast. Greg, thank you so much for taking the time today to be on the podcast. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, absolutely. I'm psyched. Uh, I've, you know, it's our 10th anniversary, so I uh, had a chance to to sort of think about Corbin and the Corbin story and, and the context yeah, of the decade. Yeah, you know, I didn't realize when we set this up that, you know, you're, you know that today is actually the, the 10th anniversary. It's kind of, I don't know, it, it, it's just amazing to even think about how you disrupted a wine industry coming from the medical field. And it's what a story. Well, you know, it's a, it's been remarkable for me as somebody who's a wine consumer more than anything else. I mean, I, I've never worked uh, in the wine industry. I, I do work in medicine and, and still do. It's half my, half my job uh, is in my spinal implant company, Intrinsic Therapeutics. Uh, and the other half is in wine. And uh, the fact that this grew from a hobby that I machined, developed in my own basement uh, to something that became a company that's now, you know, with product in 60 countries and we work with still and sparkling wines and I've, I've gotten to travel the entire planet. Um, I, I did the math just recently looking at the number of capsules that we'd sold that we've, we've been involved in the pouring and service of, of 200 plus million glasses of wine. Uh, <laughs> right. It's, it's kind of crazy to think that, you know, there, it, that's our fault. 200 million glasses of wine that others got to enjoy at some point. We had some sort of contact with their life uh, in that moment when they enjoyed a great glass. That's the part of it that I, makes I me the happiest. I can only imagine. And, you know, before we started recording, you said, you know, it's a, it's a vacation day, you know, kind of a holiday for Corvin. You know, are you getting together with, you know, as the team or selected people and opening a special bottle of wine later today? You know, we, we got together last week uh, to celebrate, and I've been touring the planet uh, to meet with all of our various partners. So I was in London and Italy and France, uh, in Singapore and Australia, um, meeting with our teams in these various places. We have, we've got people, we've got headquarters in Amsterdam, uh, we've got a lot of people in London, a lot of people in, in Australia and uh, Singapore, and then here in the United States, I'm just outside of Boston. Uh, you know, and that it's been great. It's sort of an extended uh, one, a 10 year celebration. Uh, we had a big company outing last week uh, with the guys here in Boston. And then some of the folks that, that were here with me on launch day 10 years ago, uh, we, we all went out to dinner uh, last week and, and talked about, you know, the things that have changed in our lives, the things that have changed in the wine industry and, and how Corbin had, had an impact uh, over this time. There's a lot of a lot of pride uh, in in that group, and some of them aren't particularly or didn't start as wine lovers either. They were just right. great engineers. No, that, right? that that is great. Oh, uh, you know, you mentioned that you were working with still wine and sparkling wine. You know, I myself am a big sparkling fan, and uh, this past weekend, you know, I'm, I'm based in Oregon. Uh, we had the International Pinot Noir celebration. Uh, and I was mentioning to Julia Covey, you know, that, you know, I was going to interview you today. And, he, and she's like, oh, Greg is such a great guy. And I have to tell you, the the sparkling Coravin, I mean, it's just wonderful. It's great. And, you know, I had to end up buying another one, you know, so I have one for Washington, D.C., another one for when I'm home. And she's like, it just it just works great. That's awesome. Uh, so how... <laughs> 
what was the impetus to like creating the the sparkling core of it? Oh, uh, sparkling. You know, I, I spent, so I invented the original Coravin back in 1999 when my, my wife at the time was pregnant with our second son. So she had stopped drinking completely. And I was in this situation where I wanted to explore the great wines that we had, but I, I just, uh, I was unwilling to drink a full bottle. And actually I, what I wanted was to be able to taste multiple wines side by side uh, to really learn faster about wine. And so, you know, then followed 11 years worth of testing and friends using it. And finally, one of them convinced me that I should start a company. And so started the company in 11, launched it in 13. And uh, the, the reason I bring this up with sparkling is literally day one, I guess, 10 years ago today, when I showed off Coravin and what it did, needle going through the cork and pouring still wine, the very first question was, <laughs> does it work with sparkling? <laughs> it's like... Here I'd spent 14 years of my life right, to make this thing for still wine, and you know it wasn't enough. And so uh, uh, I immediately started to work on sparkling. Honestly, back then uh, I didn't drink much sparkling wine. I was um, whites and reds, and sometimes dessert wines, and and the things that that Corvin opened up to me. And and frankly, I'd been drinking using Corvin for 14 years by that time. And so uh, I was I was spoiled in my by the glass choices uh, in my house and in restaurants. Uh, very soon thereafter, uh, over at friends' houses, where I'd given them the Corvin, and and uh, Corvin did not work with sparkling wines. And so I I didn't drink many of them. I I would open a bottle on Christmas or New Year's or to celebrate a friend's whatever it was anniversary or a child's birthday. Uh, I was a you know two three times a year kind of sparkling consumer. Um, but I started working on sparkling in 13, did the wrong thing for four years, trying to pass needles through the cork and creating all sorts of varieties of wine fire hoses. Um, and then, you know, ultimately, uh, one of my engineers, actually, uh, Otto, who's, who's still with us and still one of our great designers and engineers, uh, said, hey, wait a minute, isn't sparkling wine full of CO2? And isn't CO2 even heavier than the argon we use in still wine products? Isn't that going to help protect it from oxidation? All we got to do is close it securely so no oxygen get in and we can uh, recharge it to restore the prolage. Isn't that all we have to do? And, and so with that phrase, uh, we started testing the current system. And uh, four years later, and it wasn't easy, uh, we launched it. And it was my job. This is, of course, during the heart of the pandemic that we did most of our testing, uh, it was my job to right. validate that it worked. And so right back to the original Corbin testing, I'm doing blinded prospective studies of sparkling wine. And so I had to have three bottles of each because I'd open one and take out some wine and then I would blind taste it at, at a month and then three months. Uh, so I had to have control bottles. And uh, then there were all the different varieties of sparkling wine. And I began to realize how incredible the world of sparkling is. I could drink just sparkling wine the rest of my life and be completely satisfied. And I had no idea that was the case. As soon as I, so I tested 250 <laughs> different sparkling wines from around the world, old vintages, young vintages. It was, I, mean, well, I had a pretty good pandemic. But, uh, you know, the, the thing that I learned was this is another beverage that is spectacular. It's another wrinkle on this wonderful wine world and now I have a glass of sparkling wine every day. I, I use Corbin sparkling all the time. I, it's changed my consumption habits. My my go-to wine is now sparkling. Exactly. Wine. I love the complexity of sparkling, and just it's just another rabbit hole of the world of wine itself. It's just it is absolutely wonderful. Yeah, and there's you know there's there's Petnat and Cava, and there's the Prosecco and the traditional method. 
um, you know, there's there's wines from New Zealand and there's sparkling wines from Tasmania. And, uh, you know, it's you can find it anywhere. And, and just like with still wine, it ages and develops and changes in the bottle. Uh, I love the grower movement in Champagne. Um, I love that we've got great sparkling wines in California and Oregon. Uh, you know, you can really I think this is one of the things that's special about wine in general is it's a passport to the planet. It's been said many times and you get to taste a region and a winemaker's philosophy in that glass. And you get to more importantly for me, even smell it. I mean, I, I love, I love all these scents and smells. Uh, I've, I've mentioned, I went to Australia to celebrate our 10th anniversary and meet with some of our partners. I went to Italy uh, to meet with some as well. But anyway, I was at a dinner in Adelaide and, and um, uh, every winemaker mm -hmm. brought their wines uh, to the, to the event. And so there's, you know, 15, 20 different winemakers, different wines. We're all throwing a big party. And uh, I had my first Separavi cool. from Australia, I, something I've never, I'd never had, had before, right? <laughs> Separavi from Australia. There's an infinite world to explore. And she turned out to be Georgian. And, you know, she made Separavi in Georgia and she made it in, oh, wow. in Barossa. And I was like, <laughs> you what? And so I got to taste her wine side by side of, you know, Barossa, Separavi and a Georgian Separavi. And, you know, this is a grape I was introduced to as a result of Coravin just to begin with. And here I am, you know, in this otherworldly life of uh, meeting up, as you know, you know, the wine is made by wonderful people yeah. in beautiful places. And so uh, to be able to share that with so many people of this last decade, still in sparkling, has been I, I incredible. I can only privilege. imagine. I, and, I, and I have to ask, right, we all know, you know, the kind of the origin story of, of champagne being the, like the, the devil's wine, because it would automatically just out of the blue psh, explode in the cellar. You know, did you have any experiences <laughs> where you put too much CO2 in the bottle and it just kind of went all over the place? No, I mean, the, the first four years when I was putting a needle through the cork, I was pretty surprised <laughs> by what happened. <laughs> that, that, uh, that, that, you know, that was more of a fire hose than anything else. It wasn't adding too much CO2. And, and we did, you know, as, as we as we are want to, we did an enormous amount of testing. I mean, we have one of the best engineering teams. It's really extraordinary. Uh, probably the best engineering team I've ever worked with, uh, right. medical or otherwise, at, at Coraman. And, and so they did an enormous amount of testing. And, of course, sparkling wines are, are at various pressures from uh, just over two bar, uh, two atmospheres, up mm. to seven plus. Uh, and so when we were doing Corbin Sparkling, we had to find those edge cases because whenever you're making something, you want to find the outliers uh, that are really the extremes so that you can test to see right. that you work with both. And so we had a really wonderful Prosecco, Nani Prosecco, which is the lowest pressure we ever measured. Thank God it was good because I had to taste a lot of it. And that's not always true. I won't... I won't uh, rat out my screw cap testing wines because that was god awful but boy it showed oxidation um but the other the uh high end was california sparkling it was um uh, chandon from which was interesting because moat hennessy was a development partner of ours and their wine wound up testing out at just over seven bar uh seven atmospheres so we when we um developed the system which consists of a stopper that fits on any bottle and a charger that fits in your hand and, and restores the pressure using co2 uh, we had to pick a pressure because we regulated very carefully. And so what would make Nani Prosecco not too sparkly and Shandon from California not too flat? Uh, and so we found the perfect pressure oh, where wow. people couldn't tell. Um, and actually, the, the good news for all of us is that 
it was easier for everyone to tell a low pressure wine that had become more high pressure than it was to, test, to, to tell a high pressure wine that become slightly lower pressure. And so that meant that we got to set our- No, 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 nerd, nerd out. I am, I'm an engineer too, so nerd <laughs> out, please. I got to, yeah. we got to, we got to set our pressure low, uh, er, uh, toward the lower end, which was great because it means that you can preserve more bottles with each capsule because uh, we use less CO2 to build the pressure. Anyway, it was a, uh, my goodness, what an, ex and it was an, it was an extraordinary experience. It was a culmination of a lot of different experiences. We, um, we learned a lot with the pivot product that we also launched in the pandemic, uh, that, that not all materials behave the same way in the, in the way that they right. seal against oxygen, um, that silicon rubber is particularly permeable to oxygen and that some medical materials are absolutely impermeable to oxygen. And so most of the stopper world in the world of wine is using silicon rubber, looking at the bottle, thinking it looks closed. The reality is that oxygen is permeating through it rather rapidly. So even if you put a silicon rubber stopper in a bottle, it's oxidizing, um, more oxygen's getting in. And so I, we'd found this material that uh, didn't allow oxygen in uh, during the development of Pivot. Uh, and we were able to transfer that material over to uh, the oh, wow. sparkling stopper. Uh, and so there's, there's been a lot of science that's hidden in, uh, well, inside I, I, of Coral. It's, it's extraordinary science and it's, it is absolutely amazing. And I love it. Um, I have to share a little story with you. Uh, so growing up, uh, my, my grandpa, he had a house full of clocks and, you know, on the, on the weekends, you know, when I would stay over or whatnot, you know, at around midnight, all the clocks are chiming and going off. There's no way that I could sleep. But to this day, you know, I still have a clock fascination. And do I have all my clocks running? I don't. I still, do I love clocks? Yes. Do I love watches? Yes. So I, I hear that, you know, you had a lot of inspiration from your grand, grandfather. Uh, what are some of the things that, you know, has, is still with you today? Yeah, I, there's nobody that shaped my career more than him. Um... So he was a, he was a relatively uh, well-known uh, Austrian engineer of the, of the 19th century. He was born in 1900. And his doctoral thesis when he was 20, uh, so 1920, uh, was the axial uh, flow compression jet engine, uh, which is the jet mm -hmm. engine that we use now. Um, and then, of course, in the 1920s, the, the Germans and the Austrians were not allowed powered flight because of World War I. And so they were just sitting on test stands and generating a lot of power. And he went from that into airplane design, airplane construction, uh, and then into guided missile systems during uh, World War II. And so he was, he was captured by the American military in, in 1944 as part of something called the Project Paperclip where they were trying to seize the leading German engineers, Werner von Braun was one of them, um, to bring them over to the United States before the Russians got to them uh, so that they could help the United States build its military after the war was over. And so my grandfather was the first engineer captured by the Americans as part of this. He had developed a radar and radio guided missiles. Uh, and so, you know, he was important for the U.S. And he then worked on the tow missile, the Sidewinder and the Hawk missile in the U.S. And so by the time I met him, you know, I was young, a young kid. He died in 1982. I was born in 69. And so I, I, we, my parents divorced. I moved out to Southern California, uh, which his house uh, with my mother, his daughter. 
And he was a man of few words. He's an Austrian, you know, sort of hard-nosed character. Uh, but he came up to me one day and he, seen, he said, you know, you seem like a smart guy. Uh, you should work in medicine or energy. We'll never have enough of either. Uh, and you know what? I built enough weapons. Uh, we really, we no, really don't no. need any more. Uh, right. And, and, and so I, uh, I took that to heart. And for the first career that I had, I worked in fusion power, um, trying to generate carbonless uh, energy that didn't create too much nuclear waste. So the way that the sun works, fusing hydrogen together. Um, went to college for that, went to work in Japan for that. So I, I had a fascinating career. I got to speak Japanese, uh, which was great. And I love the culture and the food still and sake is still a big part of my life. Uh, but I realized that fusion power would never be as efficient as pulling black stuff out of the ground uh, or uh, collecting sunlight, which is the exhaust of fusion out of the sky. And so I was like, okay, well, that career is a bust. I'm going to go into medicine, right. his second choice. And I've been in medicine ever since I, and, and completely satisfied with it. I'll never, I'll never leave medicine. Uh, it's that opportunity to, I think for my grandfather, I have a pretty sizable karmic debt. And, um, and so, I mean, he worked on the guidance system for the V1 and the V2. There was a famous missile of his that was used catastrophically in the sinking of a ship, uh, transporting a lot of people. And so, you know, I, I, I had this karmic debt. Uh, and so I made a commitment when I uh, was 12, 13, that I was going to positively influence as many people as I could. And medicine gives you that very direct connection. Um, last week, we operated on a fireman and a, and a, um, and a pilot uh, with my spinal implant company. And I got to, you know, got to meet the patients before and afterwards. And, and so that, that gives me a lot of, um, a lot of energy. And I, you know, I've come to real, I was thinking, you know, wine was never part of my plan. Uh, Corvin was never really part of my plan. It, it, truthfully, it took a friend writing a check at a breakfast saying, I'm going to found this company if you don't, um, you know, it's like, I'm writing a check. You tell me what it's worth. We're going to go deposit it. This guy named Jeff Arnold, uh, still very, very close to, um, to start Corvin because I, I was busy running medical companies. I never really thought of it as anything other than a gift to my friends um, that I was making, you know, first once a month and then, you know, once a week and then four or five times a week. It was, it was a big time consumption gift to friends. Uh, but, you know, it, I, I started it with some hesitation thinking, does this meet my mission of positively influencing as many people as I can? And I have come to be completely and utterly convinced that it does. Um, wine is part of the quality of life. And I've seen enough in medicine where when you don't have quality of life, extent doesn't matter. And so, uh, you know, to be able to be a part of, I mean, I, so enriched my life as it does many other people. Uh, it's the most, as Marquis d'Angerville, Guillaume d'Angerville, Volney fame said to me once during one of our blind tastings, we were doing a big blind tasting with Burgundy producers and uh, I was nervous as all hell. And, you know, they've got a bunch of glasses in front of them. Some of them from a Corbin bottle a year ago and some of them from a bottle we just opened to the same wine and, and they're blind tasting and they're dead silent. And they're extremely serious. And Guillaume d'Angerville stands up and he says, we should be speaking. He's, wine is the most social <laughs> beverage. Uh, and he's right. You know, since 8,000 years, it's this, Thing we share together and brings people together and you know infinite fascination so I'm, i i i think it meets my my mission established 
by my grandfather. Yeah, no, I, when I can I was only 12. imagine. And if I remember correctly, you know, when you were first uh, introducing Coravin to Burgundy, you know, you sat down with a winemaker, and you know, you know, you were nervous how you know you know Burgundy would accept the the product and whatnot. And if if I'm remembering correctly, the winemaker was like. Can you please, you know, open this, you know, this old bottle? I think it was like from his mom or something. Yeah, yeah, that was. Uh, so as a precursor to that, so I, I when we founded Corbin, we knew that we we use our product on somebody else's, and so we knew we had to introduce it to them before we did anything else, before we launched in the country. And so in in the United States, we went to California and Oregon uh, and Washington. Uh, to show it to winemakers before we launched, we would give them to some of the winemakers. And the same thing was true in France. And so we went, importantly, to Bordeaux and Burgundy and, and then to the Sommelier in Paris. And uh, I'd just been to Bordeaux with friends who had introduced me to these different wineries. And I'd been walked out mm. by two Bordeaux producers, walked out of the, the winery, like, you know, you take that infernal contraption uh, and get out of here. You're going to you're going to interfere with the consumption of wine. Uh, you're going to decrease the sale of our wine because people are going to be saving it rather than throwing it down the drain, you know? And, and so I, I went from Bordeaux, a place where I had enormous respect for the wine to, to Burgundy, where frankly, I was frightened of the wine, right? It's, I've never paid more money for a bad bottle and I've never paid more money for a great bottle, uh, than in Burgundy. And, and some of the, the top producers were, you know, heroes of mine. And so this was um, Bonne de Martre. That was the first place that we went to. And Jean-Charles, and he has a very long name thereafter, uh, was the family representative. And he was on his hill of Cortani, owned more Grand Cru vineyards than anybody else. And I was expecting a similar reception to Bordeaux. And, you know, there I walk in and um, very elegant Guillaume, or not Guillaume, but uh, Jean-Charles, uh, we show it to him on a bottle of Bordeaux, which I, I still to this day regret, right? I didn't even have Burgundy on me and I'm pouring him a Bordeaux from one of the places that had kicked me out that I had brought to them. It was a 64 um, Costestronel that, that I'd really loved. And so I, I, um, I show him and then he was the one who walked away, came back with a bottle and, and said, hey, can we use it on this? This is the last wine my mother made and I'm, I'm running out. I, I don't know what it tastes like and I would love to try it. And, it was so moving. And then we, he asked us to pour ourselves a glass and, and uh, the very first thing he said was, how does it, how does it taste? Is it okay? Right. right. He's asking us and I'm, I'm sitting there nearly in tears going, you know, it's one of the best things I've ever tasted. Yeah, no, that, that yeah. is such a. Burgundy is, uh, they're great yeah, people. Yeah. That Wonderful is such story. a touching and moving story. And, uh, you know, just bringing, Again, just another example of bringing wine together for, you know, for everybody to, to share. It's absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the folks in Burgundy um, adopted Coravin very, very quickly. I mean, they, if you think about it as a winery, wine region, they have very little production. Right. And their prices are really, really high. And every time press would come by or somebody would come by, they'd have to pull multiple corks and multiple bottles that could have been revenue. Um and and pour people a taste and then what do they do with the rest of it you know maybe they drank it or gave it away but uh they and i think as a result of that scarcity and the value of their wines they they were the most aggressive at picking up corvin wow. them in napa that's <laughs> that is wonderful uh, so you I, I believe you met your wife in graduate school and you know her dad was a wine collector uh at that point i don't think that you're too much into wine uh but like was he 
inviting to you to his to his cellar or was that something that you had to like earn to get access to his cellar <laughs> i got to see his gun <laughs> closet first i mean <laughs> uh you know i fell in love with wine when i was 16. Uh, tony peju poured me my first glass it was his first vintage just the stars align and i i met that wonderful man uh, now since passed away um and you know i was stunned that it was delicious from a grape didn't taste like a grape in any way you know that's that's my memory of it and i was a californian at the time i went to high school in newport beach in the south and uh and so drank california wine all throughout college uh undergrad in boston and then went to japan and didn't drink wine at all for a year and then came back and met my, my who would become my wife and um her it was it was her family for sure i mean they they were of scottish or of scottish descent and drank exclusively european wines that i didn't i didn't know anything about and uh and most importantly her grandfather a man named scott inkley uh who was a, a doctor a pulmonologist head of university hospital of cleveland mayor of his town i mean he was an incredible guy um had a three thousand mm. bottle wine cellar uh, in a root cellar in Cleveland or in a suburb of Cleveland. And, um, you know, he was 80 something at the time that I met him, late seventies, early eighties. And he had all these incredible wines from Europe and from California. He poured me a 1990 Chave Hermitage, um, right. which changed my life. You know, I, he would open wines for holiday gatherings when everybody came out for Christmas. He was sort of the central house where everyone went back uh, and he would open uh, California wines from the 60s. So BV, Inglenook, 60s and 50s. And, and so he showed me his cellar and I saw it all. And I remember thinking, you know, you're 80 now and you've got 3,500 bottles of wine that you've collected carefully, Burgundies, Bordeaux, all from the 60s, cases of 61 Bordeaux. I mean, and I was like, you know, it's time to start drinking these things. And he goes, you know what? They're they're too expensive to drink. They're, you know, I looked at that La Mission Obreon, it's like three grand. <laughs> and, and, and I said, what did you pay for it? Like 12 bucks <laughs> back in the 60s? You, you know, just think 12 right. bucks <laughs> and drink it. And, uh, you know, he wouldn't. He was one of the first people that I gave a, a prototype to. Uh, uh, at the time, it was called Wine Mosquito, a wine mosquito prototype. And uh, we would sit together and drink his various wines by Coravin and taste across like 65 Lynch Bage, 61 La Mission Obreon. He gave me a case uh, of wine in exchange for the Coravin. It was 12 bottles, all from the sixties, California and Bordeaux and Burgundy. And it, it, he, so he ignited my love for older wines. He absolutely, uh, like if I was going to drink a red wine from anywhere, it's like that my desert Island red is uh, is a Northern Rhone that's old. Right. It's uh, I, I could drink uh, Syrah, Cote Roti, Cornas, Hermitage. I could drink that stuff. Uh, you know, it, it, it's just the most transformative, uh, metamorphosing grape. Uh, you know, it's like all white pepper when you first taste it and, and it's young. And then it becomes like this foresty, mm -hmm. olivey thing. 
And then it becomes like bacon, blood and meat uh, right. when it gets really old. And none of those things are remotely like a grape. Like it's the most distant. right? And then you've got Australian Shiraz, which is, you know, it can be described sometimes uh, when it's unbalanced as a, as a, you know, blueberry fruit bomb. Um, and then there are other more balanced and eucalyptus and marvelous uh, things. It's just this oddly transformative wine that takes so much of the terroir and the people from its that, that make it. That I just and you know Washington State also great stuff uh, in Syrah. So anyway, he ignited my love of uh, of Rhone and and old. Um, you know, being able to drink something that's older than yeah. you are, being able to. I mean, I've, I've tasted wines back in mm -hmm. the 1700s. Uh, now as part of Corvin and and uh, seen a bottle from the 1600s that uh, was drawn up off the bottom of the North Sea and we opened it and it was <laughs> it was skunked. It was like seawater had gotten in. It wasn't really wine anymore, but it was super cool to see this 17th century English right. blown glass bottle with a cork in it. It's really when wow. all of that started. Um, yeah, so I, I I thank him for that. He Grandfather yeah, no. was an amazing guy. Yeah, no, Since it, it sounds like it. Uh, you know, you've you know, you've mentioned you know California wine, a little bit of Washington wine. I gotta I gotta ask, you know, how how deep down the rabbit hole have you gone? You know, in into Oregon. Oh, I love Oregon. Uh, I've got a bottle of Walter Scott sitting here, which was poured to me by a Seattle. I think it was RN seventy four when they had a restaurant up in Seattle. They poured me this. The waiter was the somebody was so excited by Walter Scott. It's like I'm gonna pour you some stuff blind, and. Uh, and I've written with them because I was like, so your wines are, they're delicious and you're selling them for 50 bucks. And I, do they sell out? Yes, they sell out. I was like, you know, you, the price elasticity, you could increase your prices. And they're like, nah, no, happy, totally comfortable. So, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm infatuated with, uh, or I think Oregon is the new Burgundy, Oregon and better its own thing. Right. Uh, I'm friends with Veronique Duran boss. Um, so uh, the Duran wines of Burgundy, I was, Back when I started uh, Coravin, I was giving them away as uh, gifts to friends and they would pay me in wine. And uh, one surgeon I know out in Oregon sent me a half case of Magnums oh. of Juran wines. Uh, and that, that it's, I sort of have a going joke with Veronique. Every time I finish one of the Magnums, she sends me <laughs> another one. <laughs> uh, you know, the, it, I could drink Chardonnay and Pinot from Oregon you know, that thing I said about Burgundy, you never paid more for a worse bottle uh, or for a great one. Uh, the, I've, I've really not had bad Oregon Pinot and no. Chardonnay. Uh, and the price, quality for price is extraordinary, even on the upper end stuff. Uh, it's just delicious. Um, and a lot of really interesting people are making them. I mean, it's it's got that perfect combination. I, I feel terrible with Oregon. I've never gone uh, to the winemaking regions of Oregon. I, I really want to go. Uh, never been to the Rhone, my favorite uh, wines in the world. Never been there and uh, just haven't haven't had the chance. Uh, but uh, I would love to go to the Pinot yeah. festivals in, in Oregon. Yeah, no, I, yeah, no, I, I think stay. you definitely should. I mean... Uh... <laughs> Like I said, last weekend uh, was the International Pinot Noir celebration. So many people, so many producers. Uh, Carlo Mondavi was there this weekend. Uh, you know, great guy. You know, it's totally That's down cool. to earth. But, you know, just and then, you know, other mom and pops were there. And just it's absolutely amazing. And, uh, you know, whenever whenever you do make 
the, the time to come out to Oregon, let me know and I'll take you around. I will be there. I, I okay. promise to be there next year. I will be there for the next year's celebration. My good friend, Andreas Vikoff, who runs Brunelmeyer in Austria, uh, was the first person to say, "You of all the wine events all over the planet, and, and you the do." And the, the theme for next year is Oregon Pinot Noir, or not Oregon, just Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, and that's that's the theme. So it's going to be a spectacular <laughs> weekend. Oh, I'm uh, I'm looking forward to it. I, I think Oregon is what I've been told uh, meets the general requirements of of great wine producing regions. Is beautiful place, great people. Um, and my interactions with Oregon producers uh, has been great. I, I'm, I've been fortunate and unfortunate that uh, when I founded the company, I ran into a guy named Peter Johnson. Uh, he actually tried to buy the Corvin patents off of me just as I was founding the company. And we got along famously. Uh, he's one of the best salespeople I've ever met in my life and just a spectacular human being as well. And he joined uh, Corvin as the uh, head of uh, winery sales. And so we all say, you know, of all the jobs in Corvin, the guy who has the best job yes. is Peter. And uh, the downside of it is that Peter's handled the United States for me so well that he, he spends all of his time in Oregon, Washington, uh, and California, and sometimes right. Michigan and Texas, right? Uh, uh, helping, helping ourselves with wineries. I mean, wineries are a big part of our, our revenue, both to the wineries themselves, but yeah, also I, to I their can customers. Imagine. Uh, Earlier, you know, you mentioned, you know, your wife was pregnant with your second child when you came up with the idea of, of Coravin. Uh, and it took you eight years before actually creating the, that first prototype. Uh, what was, I think you kind of mentioned it was just kind of like a, a little side hobby there for a little bit. But like, what, what made you like want to continue moving forward? Was it just curiosity and just trying to make it better? Or, or what was that? What was that like? There were a couple of um, a couple of big leaps forward. I mean, I, I work in medicine, and, and the original needle that's used in Corvin was developed. I worked on it for a chemotherapy or or drug infusion system that was an implant under the skin, and you would access it with a needle over and over again, and you had to do that over the course of somebody's therapy, which could last months, which meant that the needle had to do no damage to the thing that it was going through. Uh, and so I got good at making needles as a twenty three year old man. Um, so that was the, the, my understanding of the technology. And I knew gases from physics and plasma physics. And, and uh, I had a basic understanding of how to make things uh, from my college education. And also when I worked for Mitsubishi Heavy Industries on, on fusion power, they were a master manufacturers. So I, I had all these components uh, and I built the first device. Um, and it, you know, the second prototype worked, the first one didn't. Uh, the, and that was 99. Um, and then I, you know, I, I used it every day. The first glass, the first time, first moment that I had it working, I, I had five different wines that evening. I, I've never, I've never gone back. I, I drink differently from others. I'll, I'll have a half a glass of this and a half a glass of that. I'll have a half glass of white, a half glass of red, a dessert wine, uh, you know, and on a Tuesday. And to me, it doesn't matter. I just put them back in my cellar. And, but I wanted to prove to myself that, I wanted to eliminate any hesitation that I had between me and a great glass of wine right. and the wine that I wanted or between my wife and whatever glass she wanted or between my friends who came over and whatever glass they wanted. And for me, eliminating that hesitation meant that there would be no change. And I had to set a, a timeline for that. And I said, okay, there'd be no change in the wine out to five years. 
And so while it was a pet project in the evening, I started doing blinded prospective randomized tests where, you know, I would take, uh, I would buy a half case of wine. I do work in medicine. I'd buy a half case of wine. I'd pour them in a glass out of the first bottle and I'd write the date and the needle and the gas I was using and the pressure uh, and uh, any notes on the taste. And then I would come back at one month and compare it to a blindly to a, another bottle from that half case. And then I come back at six months and add a third bottle. Then one year at a fourth bottle, two years, a fifth bottle, five years, right. the last bottle. And so uh, that five years takes five years to pass. And, and then friends would come over and they would say, sure, it works with California cab because that's what I was drinking. That stuff's bomb proof. You've got to try it with red burgundy or uh, Oregon Chardonnay or Riesling from Austria or Germany or uh, uh, Menthea from Spain or, you know, name your grape and variety and region. People would always challenge, yeah, right. but it doesn't work on this. And does it work with this kind of cork? And does it work with that kind of cork? And, and so by that declension into madness, I had 3,200 bottles in six bottle sets in my wine cellar, growing from 30 when I invented it uh, to, to this, you know, sort of my, my, my wife, she said, it looks like a wine store, right? I had wine from every region around this. Luckily, we had a big basement. Uh, and they weren't expensive wines. I mean, the average price is like right. 15, 20 bucks uh, for, for these wines because I was trying to save cash. Uh, so that was one part of it. It was proving to myself that it worked and then proving to all my friends that it worked. But then before I gave my first one to somebody else, it was 2003, and a really close friend of mine, Ryan Drant, was getting married. And uh, I wanted to give him a very unique wedding present. And so I, I, I took this, this early prototype that, as a friend of mine said, you need an octopus with a PhD to operate. Uh, I took that. And I was like, okay, how can I make one that another human being can use? And, uh, and so I went through 14 different iterations after that first one. So I got to what was called Mosquito 15. Uh, that worked pretty easily, was pretty small, was simple to use. Somebody else could use it and, and gave it to him as a gift. And along with three bottles of wine, three different wines and said, Hey, you know, enjoy these over time, uh, with your spouse. And so that was the sort of mechanical evolution. And then that's when I started giving them to friends. And anytime something would break, I would design that whatever it was that broke out of it. Uh, so it was a combination of this improving for the next friend gift and, proving to myself right. that it worked. Uh, and luckily I did early. And so I stopped testing. So I had all these bottles uh, that I've been <laughs> drinking this year. It's, you know, 10 year anniversary that were Corbin back in 2003 and 2004. Wow. So throughout 20 years, uh, we did a blind tasting in New York of a 19 year accessed wine. We did another 10 year accessed wine out in Napa. Uh, where one out of 35 people guessed which was the Coravin versus which was the bottle we just opened. Uh, yeah, it's been a, it's a labor of love and, you know, it was the only gift I gave people. <laughs> well, no, it, I mean, that, that, that's great. It, at any point, you know, when your wife would, you know, go down to the basement and see all these bottles of, of wine, was she just like, seriously? And just like, put your, put her hands up. Like, this is crazy. We, this, this has got to go. Oh, she was supportive. Um, you know, I have, a, I have a machine shop in the basement that she probably would rather have seen go away because that my version of relaxing, you know, I didn't watch much television, was go downstairs and right. machine something, uh, including the next version of the next of prototype course. or design something. 
And, uh, you know, the, we have two kids that are musicians, uh, along with being computer programmers and, and, uh, and so we built them a sound room next to the, to the wine cellar. Uh, she actually wow. built out a wine cellar for me, um, as a gift one year. So, you know, it was, a it was a family project. My kids would do the oh, wow. pouring for the blind tasting, right? They would, <laughs> I had a three-year-old who was fully capable of pouring, of pouring wine using the early Corbin prototypes. My, my first son named it, uh, wine mosquito, a, a very sticky name that, that took us, you know, a dozen years to switch um, to to Coravin eventually, so my kids were involved. Uh, my spouse has she's a super taster, and so uh, you know she was uh, extremely capable of detecting changes. And then my my kids both have an extraordinary sense of smell, and so they've been smelling wine since they were oh my three goodness. or four years old. You know, going across the various glasses, saying, "Nope, they all smell the same." Right. Nope, well, this one smells that's pretty remarkable. Um... So I myself am a computer engineer and just hearing your methodical uh, process of tasting all these wines over five years, did you use a spreadsheet? Did you use a journal? Did you use a custom software package? What, how did you keep track of all that? You know, it was all in Excel. Uh, and, and that is one of my limitations, right? I, I could have used a host of other uh, forms of software, but uh, I'm old enough now. There's got to be an Excel meme. <laughs> Right. <laughs> that relates, relates to me. Uh, but, you know, there, I, one of my great joys is programming in Excel and writing complicated equations because <laughs> I wanted to see, you know, did wines from the old world uh, or new world age differently? Did uh, was there a correlation between the gases, different gases that they work better with different wines, uh, whites versus reds, what vintage, how far back, you know, different. So I, I had this analysis going on looking again right. for what's the worst case. Um, and I would always, it was an excuse at the end to buy another set of wines that I, I didn't know that somebody had challenged me to see whether or not I could preserve it. Cause I, honestly, I knew that it worked, but my favorite part about wine is it's great variety. It's right. vastness. Um, it's, you know, it 140,000 different wines bottled every year or so I've been told. Uh, and, and they change every year they're in the bottle. And so, uh, you know, it's this, absolutely massive Rubik's cube of potential smells and tastes that uh, I wanted to explore and, and uh, using Coravin as an excuse to build the most eclectic collection of, you know, you know, you'd walk into my cellar and you'd basically say, I think he likes <laughs> Italian. <laughs> if you were to, if, if all my notes were to go away and you just saw all these wines that are bottles that are half empty, you know, uh, you'd wonder, right, you know, right. what, what happened? <laughs> yeah, I, I could only imagine, uh, you know, so you talked, you know, you, you had eight years of building these devices for friends and everything. Uh, you started Coravin in 2011, but you like launched in 2013. So in, in that two year period, were you just setting up all the manufacturing stuff and getting, you know, your launch details set up? I mean, what, what were you doing in those two years? Well, I think I think it would take me six or seven hours to machine a Coravin um, from start to finish uh, out of the various parts that I had, and it probably cost on the order of two hundred and fifty to three hundred dollars for uh, the, all the parts that went in, not even including my time. So, as a medical device guy, I really didn't understand consumer product manufacturing and how that worked, and so um, uh, spent a spent a year um, trying to solve basic. 
little nitpicky problems with the system. Uh, for example, they would all leak after a while mm. and all the gas would run out. And that's because the, the seal that, that holds the pressure from the capsules that we use was part of the device and that seal would wear out. Uh, the more capsules you use, the more you threaded it on, the more it would abrade this sealing surface and it would fail. And so we moved the, the seal onto the capsule, which is actually a really important patent of ours, uh, because that way you've got a fresh seal every time and it never leaks, which is great. Um, there were some technical problems like that, but it was really building a team and finding people. So I uh, was looking for a CEO because I knew I, I could be a CEO of a medical company, but I didn't know consumer. And so I went out and, and uh, was fortunate enough to hire a guy named Nick Lazarus. Uh, Nick built mm. Keurig, the coffee company, from pre-revenue to, I don't know, a billion dollars in valuation. And uh, had retired to become a Harvard professor, and I recruit, recruited him to be on my board. And he, he looked at me and he goes, you know, I changed the world of coffee. I would love to change the world of wine. Can I be your CEO? <laughs> yes, That's you awesome. can. Yes. <laughs> And so finding Nick uh, took a while. Um, and then there was the big technical problem. We um, very carefully control the pressure uh, that goes into the bottle. Um, and, and actually, in order to solve that problem, because the, the capsule is at 2,800 pounds per square inch, and in order to have it come out of the uh, needle at 24 pounds per square inch, plus or minus one, we had to invent and develop the world's lightest, least expensive most accurate high pressure gas regulator. Right. Bar none. I mean, that, you know, it almost brought the company down, fixing it, solving it. And we, uh, in order to get it done, you know, we, we lucked into Nick hired a great uh, engineering leader named Mike Ryder, who came out of um, mm. iRobot, which is here in Massachusetts with us. And uh, we were, I count my lucky stars that the day that Mike came over to Corvin, uh, because he and his team, um, made the impossible possible uh, and made it so that we could sell Coravin at a profit. Uh, and then we've got other partners that we had to find. Our manufacturer is the one who built and manufactured all the Keurig coffee machines in the US for the longest time. Uh, she's based in Hong Kong and she's, she and her husband are both absolutely wine obsessed. Uh, they have a winery now in Sonoma. Uh, he's a Chevalier de Testavin. Um, so, you know, they, they love wine uh, and produce a really delicious one. Um, Lacunda, okay. if you ever look for it, uh, they make Pinot and, and, and Chardonnay in have, small volumes. I'll have to look that up. Gorgeous stuff. So, yeah, finding people that were passionate, right? I, this was a passion project. And so I wanted to find people that, you know, didn't just want a job, didn't want to just take on a project, but wanted to yeah, no, that, change that the world is, of wine. A passion project is, is absolutely amazing. And when it's that close to your heart and you spend that much time in front of it and working on it, I mean, holy cow, that's, that says a lot right there. Um, you know, when you're out in front, like if, if there was another product or service that was trying to get out in, you know, out in front of wineries, do you have any, you know, general advice for them, you know, in talking to wineries and creating, you know, relationships and, you know, the wineries in general are, founded by people that are passionate about what they're doing. They're artist farmers. Um, and so, you know, for me, it's getting to respect their territory, their, where they're from, their terroir, respect their philosophy, understand their philosophy, um, and approach with being humble. You know, um, 
for example, I, I knew that Corbin worked, but I knew that Corbin worked for me right. and my family and my friends. Um, when I was approaching launch, uh, I showed it to my first master of wine. He blind tasted uh, so that I knew it worked for him too. And so, you know, uh, come at it with a sense that, well, number one, before you're developing whatever the product is that you're working on, make sure you really understand your customer in advance of developing. That's advice I'd give for anybody working on any product in any field. Um, the, the biggest mistake made by entrepreneurs and inventors is they come up with an idea and they become so wedded to the idea of the technology that they don't actually marry it up to the unmet need that they're trying to address. And the only way I, I, I frequently believe that the best inventions come from a better understanding of the unmet need, not necessarily some new technology. It's your perspective on the problem that enables you to see a new pathway towards solution. Um, and I, you know, I, I remember writing, I, I invent in medicine as well. And I, remember writing down, you know, uh, a way to better preserve an open bottle of wine. I was like, well, that's vacuum, that's uh, spraying gas in, that's, you know, all these different things that have been there. That's actually not going to solve my problem. I want to be able to drink any wine from any bottle whenever I want without having to think about mm -hmm. when I'm going to drink from it again. And then I wrote down, I need a way to pour wine from a bottle without opening it. Uh, and that's what, that's where Corbin came from. But I then spent eight, 10 years in understanding wine uh, understanding restaurants, uh, how they viewed wine, learning about uh, wine stores and how they sold wine and asking the questions. Uh, and I spent all that time before I launched, before I even started a company. So I, if you're developing a product for a winery, make sure you spend a whole lot of time in, in wineries, and not just ones that are your friends. Uh, you know, go to a country you don't know uh, and their, their wine regions and, right. and understand them as well. And then approach the, the showing off of the need that you're addressing and the prototype that you develop with tremendous uh, humility and uh, take that feedback and take it very directly. Uh, you can become defensive as an inventor and say, you know, that person's a bad person. They don't like my stuff. <laughs> they call my baby ugly. Um, you know, I had this one interaction. It's a long answer to your question, but I had this one interaction with a sommelier in, in Munich because sommelier were also very important to us. Wineries, sommelier, press. And that was a launch strategy. Go to the wineries, show it to them, convince them that it's worth something. Uh, then go to the sommelier who serve their wines. Uh, then go to the wine stores, go to the press. And so the, we, would, we would hold blind tasting events to demonstrate the efficacy of Corvin in major cities around the world. One of those cities was Munich. Uh, and there's a great restaurant there called Tantris. And uh, the head sommelier is a guy named Justin Leone. And so we wanted to use it his location as the site where we would invite all the sommelier in Munich and we would do start this one big blind tasting, a case of wine, access half of it, sign and date, come back a year later. And uh, he wrote back this, this, this hate letter. Whoa. It was a hate email. So my friend asked for us to use his, his environment, his restaurant, and he wrote in German and the guy responded in English, which meant he meant for me to see it. So it was a page and a half if emails have pages of like the most beautifully written teardown in English I'd ever read. Like, this is an infernal contraption. Mr. Lambrecht has a cellar full of hormone stuck piglets. Uh, this is the GMO of wine. You're going to interfere. You know, he's the second shooter on the grassy knoll. He's, <laughs> we, we, we have it framed in the office. And there are two ways that I could have responded to that. One is defensively, you know, um, 
oh my God, this guy's a nutbag. I'm never going to deal with him. I mean, clearly let's go to another restaurant and forget about that guy. But the thing that I've come to realize in, in decades of inventing new things, that if somebody takes the time to really right. criticize you in detail, understand it because others are thinking it. Um, you know, I pull the cork, we finish the bottle. I don't care, right? I, 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 and, that, and that is still the number one challenge we get. I finish the bottle, uh, which means we failed to explain what Corvin does. And so I, I wanted to understand him better. And so I bought a ticket to Munich, uh, had my friend make a reservation under a different name, uh, went in for a table for one and, you know, ordered the multi-course pairing menu thinking I'm going to see the sommelier and, uh, had a little notebook cause I always wrote, I was nerdy. I was writing notes on the wines and the pairings cause I was trying to understand pairing. And he comes by, by course three and is pouring me a glass and then comes by course four and he goes, you aren't Lambrecht, are you? <laughs> yes, yes, I am. He's like, you didn't bring your, your evil contraption into my kingdom, did oh, you? No. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. Because <laughs> uh, I'd have to ask you to leave. And I was like, okay. And then so by the seventh course, he was sitting down with me and talking in detail. And I was asking questions, writing down answers, why he felt that way, what I could do to change it. Um, and then at four o'clock in the morning, we were sitting on the floor of his cellar, seven bottles deep with his friends and, and all arguing. And, and, uh, his girlfriend yelled at him. It's a damn wrench. You use a wrench or you don't use a wrench. You don't hate you a go. wrench. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, okay. That, that is a great story. <laughs> but it was, um, it yeah. was great to learn. Yeah, I learned no, a there, lot there is a from lot that guy. to learn when you just sit back and listen. And I think that's just, you know, you don't even have to be an inventor or anything of that nature, just in life, just listen. And it's, it's quite yeah. remarkable. Yeah. Somebody said, listen to understand, yeah. not to reply. Yeah. It is. So, it's good so advice. you mentioned, you know, your kids and, you know, being able to smell wine and, you know, your wife being a super taster. What, what kind of legacy are you wanting to, to live for, leave for your kids? Oh, you know, it's, it's something I've thought about and anybody who deals with wineries has had the sort of earth shaking realization that very few businesses pass from parent to child, um, especially in tech. I mean, you look at the wineries, um, Bonne de Montre sold, right. right? It's gone now, but it had been around for a long time, not gone. I mean, it's owned by the guy who runs Schaefer. Uh, not Schaefer, I'm sorry, uh, Screaming Eagle. Um, but I have been with wineries where the person's name is on the right, right. label, right? And like Jean-Louis Schaub the 13th, um, you know, hundreds of years, the Antonori family, hundreds of years uh, of wineries. Um, so it's, I don't, I'm not going to pass Corbin on to my kids. I, I do hope that they, and, and sense that they have a curiosity um, in them and that they recognize through what I've done in medicine and in consumer products that you can make your own path and you can create your own future. And if you, so three pieces of advice that I, that I hope they absorb. One is intersection between that which you are passionate about and that which you are good at. If you find that intersection, you're not really working. Uh, it's 
it's a joy. And I love Corvin. I love working on Corvin. I love Intrinsic. I love working on my spinal implant company and the, the other medical companies I've had. So, you know, I, that passion and capability, find that intersection is, is then you're happy. Uh, I think the other one is to, to recognize that there's, especially nowadays, there's an infinite amount of entertainment being created. You could sit in front of a television and watch Netflix, let alone Apple Plus, let alone Paramount, whatever, for the rest of your life. You could watch YouTube for a trillion years, apparently, whatever it is, that have been generated. So I, I told my kids, make sure that you balance, make an effort to balance so that you create more entertainment or goods or product than you consume. And, and so I very much believe that myself, that, you know, I, I should create more um, than I am entertained. I should entertain more than I am entertained. Um, I should create more Corvin, more barricade, more I, I, to contribute to society uh, rather than just consume what society is, is, is pushing onto you. I think probably the final thing is, is, um, is you know, you, that that uh, advice that my grandfather gave that, you know, how, how can you possibly influence as many people as you possibly can by the end of your life? Right. What, what can you do? What is the, what is, what is that intersection of passion and competence that also intersects with societal benefit? Um, because, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm sort of a secular humanist and really believe in the potential of the human race and, and, uh, and hope. <laughs> sometimes dented hope, but hope that, you know, we are constantly moving forward and if they can contribute to that yeah. moving forward. Yeah, no, that, that would be great. great. And that's, uh, I know that's kind of the out of the blue question. And that was, it was beautiful on so many levels. Thank you for that. No, I, I, I appreciate it. I, 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 you know, I, I teach now, not enough. I, I used to teach at Stanford and and uh, now teach at the Harvard MIT uh, bioengineering biodesign programs. Always brilliant people that are getting into these programs. You know, the, the, the top of our country and other countries. And they're looking at this. You, you know, you you look at medicine and you think, okay, well, we're gonna we're gonna help people. Yes, but we're also gonna make money. And and you know, there's venture capitalists, there's investment, and there's the time, and there's the FDA, and there's a regulatory. And uh, I was with a sales rep of mine when we were doing these cases out in San Antonio last week. And he said to me, we are here to improve this patient's life right. today. Right. <laughs> that is why we are here. And in aggregate, we are here to improve as many patients' lives as we can. There are all of these swirling hurdles, right, that we've got to uh, leap, but we're looking for other people who have not lost sight of that, right. right? We want investors that think like that. We want employees that think like that. Uh, we want surgeons who think like that, right? And nurses who think like that, uh, you know, and, and never lose track of that end output of what it is that you're doing. Exactly. You know, it's not right. just a technical challenge, right? It's not yeah, just a job. Most anymore. definitely. Um, so I have some rapid fire questions and I'll get you out of here. Uh, you know, sure. so when you're, you know, in the middle of, you know, tasting, you know, blind tasting your wine by yourself or out in the machine shop, 
is there a favorite artist that you like to listen to while you're doing all of that? Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, shifts around. So, uh, a big Rolling Stones fan. Uh, my music dates me. Uh, love Paul McCartney, even some of his new stuff. Uh, so kind of old school, um, uh, uh, Dean Martin, um, uh, Sinatra, like that, that kind of stuff is wonderful. And then my kids have introduced me to uh, people like Bon Iver uh, and, and other modern bands that, that I mix in. So I've got an extremely eclectic no, uh, that's, Spotify that's great. List. That's great. Uh, do you have a favorite indulgent food? Ooh, uh, you know, caviar has grown on me. Uh, that's indulgent. Uh, oh. Caviar and champagne Sundays. Like, I don't think there's a better thing than sitting out on our our uh, our porch and and drinking some champagne and eating some caviar. I've been lucky to make friends with uh, both Black River caviar and Petrosian caviar. We exchange product, right? So that's a pretty sweet deal. Uh, and and I love that. I, I didn't eat caviar before. I, mean, I, ate, I ate everything from the ocean because uh, of Japan, but caviar was the awesome. new, relatively uh, new. Thing. If you could choose a superpower, what would it be? Oh, you know, I used to think living forever. Um, my father, who's 91, said, as long as I get the New York Times wherever I'm going and I can read that, I'm totally okay. I just want to watch humanity. I don't have to do that anymore. Um, you know, uh, to heal, it's the, uh, is the, if there was a superpower, that, that would be a great one. Uh, working in medicine, you know, the, you remember yeah. the patients you couldn't help. Uh, you know, the goal is to not extend life indefinitely, but it's to, um, it's to extend infinite quality of life until the last day. Yeah. No. <laughs> that would be the goal. You're playing chess after a run <laughs> and you're 96. <laughs> that's, that's the goal. Then, yes. you know, you can, there you go. You can sign uh, off. Last book you read, you know, it could be hardback audible, or it could even be like a, a podcast. Just read uh, The Making of the Atomic Bomb, um, which, as a physicist, you know, I, my, my mother's second husband uh, was the inventor of the Polaris missile, uh, nuclear submarine-launched nuclear weapon, uh, impossible to stop. Uh, and his argument was it ended the war. It ended global war. You couldn't, if there was a ship with a missile four minutes from your capital off your coast, on, you know, going... 10 knots, 20 meters down, you know, that you're, you're not going to win. And uh, I was fascinated by that. But the beautiful thing about this book, The Making of the Atomic Bomb, is that it's, it's absorbable easily by anyone who doesn't know physics. And it's also about the history of our understanding of the atom. Um, and it's insane how our culture has evolved since the 1800s. I mean, unbelievable leaps and bounds. And I, I hope we... Uh, keep it on a safe path uh, yeah. as much as possible. Yeah, I will definitely have to check book. that out. Well, that is all the questions that I have. Do you have any, any questions for me today? Oh, uh, if I were to go to Oregon, um, where would you stay centrally in the wine region in order to be able to get to as many wine wineries? Uh, to as get to could? as many wineries, I would say probably the Allison in Newburgh. But if you want something absolutely uh, out of this world as an experience and get uh, in your like five minutes away from like Walter Scott, Chris Stone, you know, and just some really amazing uh, producers, 
it'd be a, a little um, place called At the Joy. And you're at the Anahata Vineyard and it's heated pool, you know, up to like 12 people can stay. So it's really, you know, private and secluded and just it's that is the place to go. That sounds awesome. I will uh, <laughs> have to book far in advance uh, of the event because uh, I'm sure there's competition yeah. over great places. But uh, I'm I'm looking forward to it. It's you know, I still haven't learned enough. Uh, it's one of the things, you know, when the more you taste, the more, you know, you don't know. Uh, and so I'm, I'm really looking forward to going out to Oregon and instead of just buying it in the store, tasting it, meeting the people, putting it in context. That's yeah. Well, most definitely, you know, one. look me up, you know, when you come out and I'll, you know, I will tell you all the great places to go. I yes. love it. We'll share some glasses Perfect. of sparkling. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much for your time. I can't I appreciate it. it enough, you know, for you, you know, for your, uh, hospitality and, and, you know, and sharing your time. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, AJ. Thanks for taking the interest. I, I really appreciate it.